in my 14-year NBA career, I expected to win a championship each year at the start. So I was fortunate to win three of them in a row towards the end. So I figured out some of the kinks along the way with my teammates. But this this was a startup, right? Because you have to understand construction industry is a, a massive industry. Developers and concrete makers and cement makers, this is not a small industry that you're looking to evolve, right? And so you can imagine the challenges that we've been faced when we were initially raising funds, getting people to believe that, well, first of all, that an architect and a former professional athlete was moving into concrete. Neither one of us, you know, having studied um, material science, just having very, very serious scientists on our patents and, and on our team. I always say you hire, the, you hire the best. Look, I wasn't Shaq and Kobe, right? But I was the captain of the Lakers. And, and Sam and I always say we're stewards of this, this formula but the real gold and the real expertise is behind the scenes with our teammates that are the best in the world. Hi, folks. I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where we're talking to the innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are committed to building successful businesses that also build a better world. I'm thinking this week a lot about second acts. It's impressive enough for anyone to reach the peak of their chosen profession, but to sustain that excellence, to build on it, or to rebuild it anew, it's something that's really special, especially when that someone is able to leverage their first act to build a second act that makes a positive impact. I've been thinking about it because of our recent guests, but also because it's something that I've been fortunate enough to experience in my own career. After a decade in corporate finance and investment banking, I made the pivot to entrepreneurship, building digital media companies. It's offered consistent new challenges, new learning opportunities, new chapter after chapter, and it still does every day. So I'm fascinated by the question of how we find our next mountains to climb. How do we cultivate the motivation to keep striving? How do we identify new opportunities where our voices or skills or experiences or capital can make the most difference? And when our second act is something truly new to us, how do we find the drive to do it all over again? Now, for some of you, our guest this week requires no introduction. He's a man of many talents and certainly no stranger to second acts. In fact, the project that got him on our radar is actually his fourth career venture. He's been a professional athlete, a prolific film and TV actor, an esports pioneer, and now a budding material scientist. He is the one and only Rick Fox. As captain of arguably one of the greatest teams in NBA history, Rick guided the LA Lakers to three consecutive championships in his career, a feat that no team has been able to equal since. As an actor, he appeared on shows like Oz, The Big Bang Theory, and Shameless. But actually, all that success is only the backdrop to why we wanted to talk to Rick today. Because Rick is now the CEO of Partana, a truly innovative materials company with a game-changing solution to decarbonizing concrete. We're so excited to have Rick join us today to share his insights on the winner's mindset and his journey into impactful entrepreneurship. So let's jump in. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm really, really excited to have this conversation. And yesterday we had, a little, had to make a little game time adjustment to the recording schedule. So I want to start with the great reason, because I'm sure there's a good story. Tell us uh, what it's like to get called into the prime minister's office. How'd that happen? <laughs> yeah, unlike my earlier days in academics, where I, when calling, being called to the prime minister or the, or the principal's office meant something <laughs> not so good. Right. <laughs> in, this case, in this case, the prime minister really was calling me in for a congratulations and a celebration of what he and I discussed almost a year and a half ago, where he invited Partana to 
come home to the Bahamas and set up innovation from the front line of climate change here in a small island developing nation like the Bahamas that's in constantly threat of hurricanes and digging ourselves out of repeated death around the results of those hurricanes. And you talked about not only calling the world out, the developing world out for its impact on regions like ours with their development, but also searching out solutions and innovations where we solve our own problems as opposed to waiting for others to save us. And in this case, we launched a home yesterday, our first carbon negative concrete home in the world. And uh, it was a moment of celebration. He was very proud, very grateful that we were actually able to deliver on a vision that he had. And now we're excited about heading to COP28 in the UAE to follow up with what we promised we were going to do a year ago and to really showcase to the world what is possible. Amazing. We're going to get to a lot of the conversation about the product and the company, but I want to stick with the the Bahamas for a second because this is your childhood home. So this is a a special homecoming, I I assume. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to grow up in the Bahamas as a kid. You're assuming I can remember that far back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, in my case, very blessed. I grew up in a, uh, a home that was filled with leadership, not only by my father in the community as an entrepreneur. He was one of the leaders in the community that fought for independence. We secured that in 1973 as a country, and he went on to lead in the community uh, from an entrepreneurship standpoint, developing the first ice factory in the country. So I watched a man suit up and show up every day in service of his family and his business, but also the country, uh, leading as an example of what was possible. And then my mom was a former Olympic athlete. So in her case, I saw you know a, a parent that had performed at the highest level in the world athletically, very driven, very high standard for excellence. So I was balanced with anything is possible with my dad, with a mother also that was, ah, you're not that good. You could be better. So, <laughs> so growing up in the Bahamas for me was, uh, was also though very nurturing. Uh, we're a small island community of you know, 350,000 people at the time. I grew up, hurricanes were fun. Unfortunately, they have pivoted out of being as festive of a, of a gathering with some wind and some rain, and they've turned into devastating storms that can destroy people's lives. So you could see the seeds of a very prosperous future even as a kid. Did you ever want to go into business as an entrepreneur when you saw your dad doing it, or, or did that come later in life? No, no. I always had the spirit of taking over the family business. What got in the way of that was an MBA career. And then a TV and movie career, I would say that entrepreneurship is in my blood. I started that journey through the gaming industry a few years back, where I was a bridge between traditional sports and esports. Started a franchise there, ended up selling that and moving into game development. And then through COVID and the shutdown of the world, on the heels of Hurricane Dorian in 2019, September 1st, I started to pursue ways to explore ways for us to build more sustainably stronger, better, more hurricane resistant. And that led me to my current partnership with my co-founder, Sam Marshall, around the formula, which is the real star of the equation. When you think back to your childhood and, and growing up with an entrepreneurial family, any life lessons that stick out from your dad back then that you now see yourself emulating or, or hearkening back to or trying to emulate? Yeah, I think of my father daily. He was a leader on a level that I think, set the tone for me in life in general. I ended up being the captain of all my teams, went on to win championships, but I I knew the service element um, that he took 
on a daily basis, service to his customers, but service to his actual employees, service to the community. And so I watched him suit up and show up every day in his life in full service to the people around him. It feels like these days we're starting to see a return to a more holistic business approach and like a stakeholder capitalism that is really conscientious of the community and builds companies that are successful for the founders, but also the employees and the customers and the suppliers, like full service, as you say. And I'm curious what your take is on kind of that that pivot away from everything's got to be a unicorn to let's value businesses who are building great companies and great labor markets and great customers for the long run. It feels like an interesting contrast. I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I come from a, like I said, a small developing island nation, right? So it takes everyone right. to pull and row in the same direction, right? For us to literally at this day and age stay above, keep our heads above water. But in the case of growing up, you know, in high school and college and then into my professional life in the U.S., capitalism and the pursuit of unicorn status or billions of dollars is very freely celebrated. And it's what motivates a lot of people, right? In the case of climate tech entrepreneurship for me, the reason I was drawn to it was out of the need to survive, survival for my own country, survival for our planet. And at a time when COVID was really showing all of us how vulnerable we were as a planet, I think it was one of the first times we got to see how we all needed to be pulling together to stay alive. I think climate change is no different. I was able to see that. Here we are dealing with a global problem that sometimes gets debated, it's pushed off, it's talked about, oh, we can get there in 2070, 2080. Well, some parts of this planet don't have till then. And my country just happens to be one of them, right? So it isn't solely about the Bahamas, though. It's about really going wherever it's we're needed, bringing this material to developers and countries that are willing to change the way they, they choose to use materials so it has a more nature-positive result on our planet. Let's go to the start of the company. So it's middle of COVID. You have this chance encounter or this encounter with your, your co-founder, Sam. How did you first come in contact with him? How did this idea come to be? I always say uh, respectful of those that have lost lives and loved ones in COVID. For me, COVID was a, a blessing because it stopped things in my life and put it on pause. I dialed in with my kids. I really connected to them on a different level. I also then uh, met Sam Marshall at a time when I had a, the time in my life to sit and explore his journey, understand it, meet his technical partners that are on the patents and really go from athlete turn actor, now turn uh, gamer, then and, and now maybe a material scientist in training. It allowed me to really start to understand the landscape of construction, the impact of cement, and, and also how we make concrete and how we can do it in a more sustainable way. We launched into that full-fledged at the bottom of 2020, and 24-7, uh, we lived a part-time life. Been, uh drinking from a fire hose the last six months, but that's because people are now discovering who we are, who we have, and they want they want these products to be in their lives. How did the idea itself come to be? Was it, you know, in the, in the lab, someone saying, I think this might work, or was it... So I will, I'll give you the quick backstory. Um, Sam is an architect by trade, one of the highest standard architects in, in hospitality development. I would tell you that his frustration equally to mine was around how we were building in the world, dealing with developers who was frustrated by the results and, uh, and the lack of innovation. So he shut his firm down in 2015. He started traveling the world in search of answers. He started asking questions. Why are we burning rocks at you know, thousands of degrees for 200 years? And he went to areas that 
can't afford Portland cement. And that's only that's 80% of the world doesn't use Portland cement. So what's the other 80% using? And he had some theories, came back, put them to the test with uh, some of the top scientists in the concrete space. And uh, they worked for about a year and a half rigorously to get to what was something novel. They then patented it. And then I, that's when I came into the equation at the process. It was in midstream being patented. And I'll never forget, uh, after about a year of being in uh, business with Sam, we, we finally got the patents across the line. And that was a historic moment because in that point, we felt the world could change. And then uh, we, you know, we decided how, how do we express this formula and, and what product? And as you can imagine, you know, new innovative concretes are going to meet their challenges around the areas of implementation. People are used to using what they use. They're comfortable, regardless of its negativity. They want to know what is it going to cost. And most green results, uh, green innovations result in uh, higher cost, right, and pricing. So that's usually a turnoff for to deliver a bottom line. And then also just, you know, a new formula entering the market where, you know, traditional standards have been around for decades and hundreds of years. And it's, it's a comfort there, right? So we decided to make pavers to begin with, because if you can sit it on the ground in a driveway and it can meet the standards of ASTM standards around strength and price, then we had our, we had our mission to pave the world. We were going to just pave the world. And that led to a broader conversation around building housing. From the Prime Minister of the Bahamas, which then we took six months to get into proving our structural verifications and our formula at large in CME block, which we then generated CME blocks. And we, as of yesterday, announced our first concrete home in the world. And it meets all the standards structurally, technically. It's off the charts. In that regard, we use zero Portland cement in the foundation, in the CME blocks, in the border. The entire house is made from our part-time formula. So it's quite the monumental accomplishment for our company, but also I think we're excited for the rest of the world to now look at it as a possibility and an alternative to building with this material rather than traditional cement. I mean, let's start with the actual comparison to Portland cement itself. Again, I think a lot of folks are going to enjoy the basics here. It is a product that, as you mentioned earlier, has to get heated to very, very, very hot temperatures before it can bond, right? And so the consequence of that is it's emitting CO2 in the process of being created. And so you guys are different. Not only are you not heating the material to infinite degrees to get it to bond, but you're also, um, you, you guys call yourselves the concrete that acts like a tree, that you're carbon negative. How does that work exactly? So a couple points I'll make. So in our process, again, Zero Portland cement used in our creation of our concrete. We use our Partana binder. Our Partana binder, we get to the curing formation of concrete without any heating. We use zero energy to heat any ingredient. We cure at ambient room temperature. So we mix our formula and our ingredients together, and they cure through also the carbonation of CO2 in the process as well. And we get to the strengths that are, in, depending on how we dial it up or down, greater and stronger than traditional cement-made concrete. We use uh, two major ingredients. Both are waste materials in the world. So we're not only just making uh, positive green concrete, we're also reducing and recycling waste materials that come from two industries. One is the, the desalination industry that generates brine. Water in, is a very scarce commodity in certain parts of the world. Take the Middle East, for example. 60% of the world's desalination comes from the Middle East. So water is more valuable than oil over there. When you make concrete with Portland cement, you're using 2% of the world's 
fresh water to make concrete. We don't need fresh water. We use brine. So we take brine, which is the leftover waste from the salination plants that would otherwise be pumped out into the oceans, which they do. They re- reject it into the ocean, which destroys the seabeds. And we turn it into feedstock. We make it a positive emitting waste material. We use that as an ingredient. So we, we substitute fresh water. We use the brine. Because of using brine, our concrete gets stronger when it meets salt water. So if, if flooding happens in coastal regions where seawater hits our developments or our, our buildings, our material gets stronger. And then the second ingredient is slag. It's a byproduct of steel manufacturing. So as you know, with steel manufacturing, it's they heat up to get to the steel. There's a waste product that comes off of the steel when cooled, and that's slag. That is in landfills globally around the world, and it is a waste material that sits there. We take that, and we use those two materials along with, obviously, some other magic and a little bit of process that we have patented to get to a carbon-negative concrete. Unreal. And it, it, it positive on so many levels, right? Like every twist or turn, it's another positive impact on an existing technology. It's, it's truly innovative in the best of ways. So you start with pavers. You got your first house on model now. I have to imagine that when like, you know, a business person will look at the, the, the total addressable market, the TAM, there's infinite possibilities. <laughs> infinite. <laughs> well, we, we, we see ourselves as, as today solving a, an industry problem in construction. But at the end of the day, you know, we are a, we're moving into taking waste from industries at large and using them for positive uh, results, right? So that can take us into many different directions. But right now, you know, you talk about the addressable market of construction in the next 10 years, a $15 trillion industry. When you talk about all the verticals of what we can make from our material, I don't want to get lost on just pavers or, or just CMU block. We do pour in place, we do precast, we do panel. We have the full suite of, of product offerings that we will scale to in the coming years. Currently, right now, people can digest uh, papers and CMU box easily. People are also now calling for pour in place solutions. They'd like to use us at full scale pour in place. Um, we're already pouring in place here in the Bahamas, but you know, at scale, that'll be down the road here in the coming years. So you look, you're looking at a solution across the board in the construction industry where delivering nature-positive materials from waste, waste materials to get to a concrete building materials is a reality. So you're standing at the precipice of a huge, exciting inflection point of growth. I'm curious if you can think back to when you were first getting involved or stories that, you know, from Sam, were there any moments that, where it wasn't so certain that, that success was on the horizon? Like, tell us about those. Man... <laughs> I'm a man of faith, man. I, I, <laughs> and, and so you have to you have to know that every year I uh, in my 14 year NBA career I expected to win a championship each year at the start. So I was fortunate to win three of them in a row towards the end. So I figured out some of the kinks along the way with my teammates. But this this was a startup, right? So Sam has a myriad of of stories of the frustrations that come with innovating around concrete and the challenges of getting people to listen to him, the challenges of getting people to try and to believe. Because you have to understand, construction industry is a a massive industry. Developers and concrete makers and cement makers, this is not a small industry that you're looking to evolve, right? But we always compare it to industries that have 
transition that evolved over time. You look at the wireless industry that's gone from 3G to 4G to 5G. Now we have satellite links. You get That's just a part of evolution of the telecommunication industry. You look at the automobile industry, same thing, no different, right? Fossil fuel cars, and now you have EVs that are out there being generated. And 12 years ago, I didn't think I'd be driving a Tesla, and now I own a Tesla. And so construction is evolving, and it's always evolving with products and new things. But in the case of concrete, for some reason, it's been slower to get to, right? And so for us, we're just innovating the construction industry around concrete. And so you can imagine the challenges that we've been faced when we were initially raising funds, getting people to believe that, well, first of all, that an architect and a former professional athlete was moving into concrete. Neither one of us, you know, having studied um, material science, just having very, very serious scientists on our patents and, and on our team. I always say you hire, the, you hire the best. Look, I wasn't Shaq and Kobe, right? But I was the captain of the Lakers. And, and Sam and I always say we're stewards of this, this formula, but the real gold and the real expertise is behind the scenes with our teammates that are the best in the world. I mean, if I tell you the amount of people that have tried to hire our teammates away from us, right, because they recognize them to be the, you know, the real magic in the room, right? I got the big head on the screen here, but again, it's, it's a team effort here. Anyone that's out there that's a scientist knows when you're making concrete, there's so much that goes into it dialing up strengths, you know, getting to, you know, everything that can impact. And we've gone through third-party stringent testing. So going through those testing results and getting that those approvals, we've been verified by um, carbon uh, bodies like Vera. And uh, you know, all that stuff has been three years of stress. And, uh, and so getting to yesterday where we're announcing a home and celebrating a finished product that checks all the boxes, you know, three years of really hard work. And really, I'm sure, incredibly special. Wait, you, you mentioned something that I'm, I want to go back to in a second. You know, I spent the first decade of my career as an investment banker. And I've been in a lot of those meetings where, where folks are, you know, looking to raise money. I, I want to know what it was like to walk into some of those meetings, like, you know, whether it was with the big private equity shops or the big venture capital shops or some of the clean tech investors. And how was the idea of concrete received? Well, the VCs get excited about the scale of a market, right? But they also get more excited about getting in early enough where they can get a good chunk of a of a startup for a very low price. So make no mistake, I'm learning about the timing of when people actually write checks. Yeah. For us, it's uh, the beauty of, of a check being written in, at the angel round was I was fortunate to have Matt Chen of True Adventures, who's been a part of a first check writing exercise that he does on some 14 unicorn companies. He just happens to be have a good sense for founders, markets, and things that need to come to the world that are innovative. And he, he tabbed us back in 2021 and was our first check. And that check led to doubling down and then also, you know, getting us in front of other like-minded early investors could see the potential. And really, at the end of the day, those investors really invested from a place of belief that this thing this formula had to come to the world. We're a tight-knit investment cap table right now. It's not very long. Um, but now the, the other VCs globally and uh, really established shops are, are reaching out. And it doesn't matter where in the world they are. We're, I'm talking to all of them. It's nice to now know that they see us as a, a valid solution in the, in the space. Um, and we're just, we're just going to figure out how to get to the right valuation to grow our company in the coming years. Yeah, that first domino, man, I think both 
psychologically makes a huge impact and, and gives that kind of vote of confidence. But also for, you know, a handful of those other investors, they're all looking for the first, the first mover. And, and once you see it, then folks jump in. We've had, we've had first mover status around customers that are the biggest in the world. So there's no shortage of validation from customers around our material, whether it be an example, we just won a grant from Majid Al-Fatain, which is the number one private company in the Middle East. Um, we'll be at top 28 in their pavilion with our products. They want to put us in three of their developments in the Middle East and UAE. We're in five different giga projects in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. All these entities recognize the value of having us as a part of their ecosystem because they have sustainability goals. We're now in the U.S. with people wanting to build factories in the U.S. in the coming 2024. So all of that is taken off. You've heard about us being in the Bahamas where we're supposed to deliver a thousand homes. So there's no shortage of customers. Again, what we're realizing is we need to scale quickly and we need to scale globally. So that's, that's to your point one or two of the right VCs that will come and look at, you know, how do you scale three regions over the next three years? I think Larry Fink has said it, a bunch of, of folks in the financial sector have said it, the next set of billionaires really will come from clean tech and uh, green tech. These are the problems that the world's trying to solve. And if, they're, if they are solved successfully, they will yield huge returns for investors. So there's obviously an investment case for a lot of these investors to get involved. And you kind of mentioned the, some of the major customers, but how important do you think that that is the, the sustainability aspect is for customers? Are they looking at that first? Are they looking at the product durability first? Are they looking at the price? Like, how does that kind of equation work for your customers, you think? I always tell people that ask me, who is your customer? I say, look, we're business to business right now. But if I had a business to consumer product, I think it would fly off the, off the shelves simply because the generation that's demanding sustainability are now hitting the peak of their own choice, you know, making abilities. They want their apartments, their homes, their condos to have some responsible sustainability narrative to them or consciousness to them. Whereas three years ago, I was talking to developers and builders and they were like, yeah, you know, green would be nice. You know, I'm lead, I'm lead certified or I'd like to be lead certified, but they weren't feeling the pressure yet. Three years later, I couldn't tell you the amount of builders that are fighting for my materials that are calling going, hey, can you get me 2 million CME blocks? Can you get this material here now? Because whatever's happened in the last three years, it's no longer an option for them to wait. Because what's going to happen is when their development is done two, three years from now, they're going to be faced with a customer that's going to be asking those type of questions. You know, are you lead certified? You know, how did you build this facility? What was your ESG rating around this? Did you take into consideration? the water you used, you used concrete and, you know, and concrete is a big topic, right? Was it cement based? What other ingredients were in there? You know, people are asking these questions and because they feel, they feel like they've been handed a planet that maybe their parents were less responsible for in, in their choices. And my kids are 28 and 23 and they are more conscious of this than I expected my kids to be because I didn't teach them about sustainability. You know, I was busy being the generation that was making the poor choices, right? And so this is my my accountability shift to be not only a leader in my own household, but I listen to my kids and I see where they they shift in the things they talk about. And so I, they're proud of me today being a part of a, of a solution to the world's problems. And I think other kids are going to be knocking on their parents' Or they're going to be actually making their own choices soon, and they're going to be looking for these type of uh, solutions. I'm curious if you, the 12 year old you 
were sitting in the Bahamas and could see what you've done right now, could look at, at all you've accomplished and, and specifically look at this truly innovative home that you've built, what would the, the young you think? Uh, your dad was right and your mom was right. Your dad said you can do anything in the world. You can get out there, just tackle the world. Doesn't matter you're from that you're from this little dot on the map. Don't buy into that. Um, so I took his encouragement, and yes, I've had a big life and a big uh, career in a lot of different fields, a lot of different industries. But my mom would say, "You haven't done enough." And in this case, <laughs> I know we're not going to single-handedly solve uh, the solution of, uh, around construction or or climate change, but we can be we can be one piece of the equation that's adding solutions and choices that are better and more nature positive. And I'll always be thinking about the both of them. So I, I, the 12-year-old son of those parents today sitting here at 54 in the Bahamas right now would think that I hope my dad is proud that we have that home out here. And my mom would say to me, so how many more of these are you going to build, right? <laughs> You're going to get these out globally? That's the task of, of our companies to spread out. And that's the, the part of the plan, right? So the other thing we haven't touched on yet, you know, a big part of your mission really is to equip the world and particularly places that aren't always given the resources they need, more resilient construction materials. To so talk about that part of the mission and, and how you guys are looking at supporting that. Yeah. So it's, it's about finding the right partners, right, in, in different regions, those that are already established in, say, a country or region who are doing the scaling of material and scaling of development, getting in front of them, sharing our, our third-party you know, verifications, our product, letting them test it, doing mock-ups, showing them how it works, and getting past the initial uncertainty of what this can look like, feel like, smell like, and all the things that people want to know, right? The certainty of, of a new product. And then uh, creating a relationship with them so that they understand that we don't need to be the builder. We don't need to be the individual on the ground that's looking to take uh, market share from them. We can be the partner that licenses in the JV with them to deliver this at scale. So it doesn't matter if we're in the Bahamas, doesn't matter if we're in the Middle East, doesn't matter if we're in the US or UK or anywhere in the world. I'm having more and more of these conversations incoming now as opposed to me searching them out. And it's nice because I can, I can very quickly attest from someone in a region based on their experience and their qualifications, whether or not they're the right partner to scale long-term. Because, you know, you want to find the partners that have been doing it for the longest and you want to align yourself with them. You want to make sure that they understand that we have a goal of getting this as wide as possible. And I have to imagine that as you scale being a carbon negative product, you're going to start to drive some value from carbon credits as well, potentially. And so how are you thinking about that as an asset or as part of the business? Yeah. So, you know, we we were very bullish at the front end of our our creation uh, when we realized that so much of, of some of the carbon credit generation of credits by a company can help sustain CapEx growth. It can help sustain a startup in, in areas when you need to raise capital. We were using our credit generation as future sales to, to allow us to grow quicker. But what it sometimes does is cloud just the basic good that we do as a concrete that doesn't use for cement, right? But when you say, when we talk about carbon credits, yes, every 70 CME blocks generates a carbon credit. Every 30 with uh, the cells filled create a carbon credit. A house generates 182.6 carbon credits. So when you say, how are we using them? We, you know, we obviously, as a company, 
want to be really smart about how we can use our credits for the redistribution of wealth in some cases. Uh, take, for instance, our, our block and our homes. Our home generates 182 credits. You look at that and you say, okay, based on the markets, the carbon credit markets are pretty volatile. That has a value, right? Well, what do we use with that, that value? That bottom line additional revenue stream can be used as to support a down payment for someone that can't put a down payment down on the home. That gives us the ability to put people in homes uh, that would less fortunately be able to do, do that, right? And then uh, when we talk about countries and their NBCs at large, like if we were to build a factory here, which we're planning on doing here in the Bahamas, that would generate some 9.6 million block a year, that would generate a certain amount of carbon credits guaranteed every year. Well, that would that would allow us to contribute to in partnership with the government to their NDCs. And, and, and they can draw down on their NDCs that they're responsible for reporting back to the Paris Agreement. So, you know, there's many different ways we can look at these credits to facilitate a, a positive result, not only for ourselves, but for our customers, for our partners, and for countries that uh, make decisions to celebrate uh, the use of these products. Yeah. Um, I, I can't believe we've made it this far and I've not asked a basketball question yet. So I do want to know, I mean, but we're not going to dive in because if we do, if we go too deep, we'll just, we'll go off the rails. But I'm curious, I mean, you, you won three championships with the Lakers. And I think many would argue probably correctly that was one of the greatest dynasties in NBA history. Being a part of that machine, that family, that ecosystem, what have you taken from that into your business career? So the pursuit of Challenging uh, goals are never easy. They're never graceful. Uh, there's a lot of stress and pressure that comes with the execution of that, especially in a group dynamic. Understanding how to be of service to teammates. The beauty of what I learned through the Laker experience, I learned two things. I had my six years in Boston and then my eight years in LA. Six years in Boston was under you know the leadership of you know Red Arback and and. Larry Bird and Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, they won championships, some 16 championships. So there was a championship culture there. It was a way about going about your, your professionalism. It was a way about approaching your execution that I had a snapshot of at a very young age in the NBA. And then I got to LA under Phil Jackson and uh, played with other great players like Shaq and Kobe. And uh, the culture there was one not only of excellence, but we challenged each other on a daily basis. We pushed each other to be the best version of ourselves, and we didn't allow for ourselves to not pursue, you know, the evolution of our team's excellence on a daily basis. And so, when we think we can't go harder, we think we can't, you know, something's not possible. Like we never sat in that conversation more than you know, ten seconds with each other. We were always constantly trying to push ourselves to new heights. And so, for my NBA career. I will tell you that nothing in my mind is impossible. No comeback is too big and uh, championship is on the way. So winning is something that I've always been a part of because I've been a part of great teams. Great teams become great teams because the individuals on those teams are individually motivated, they're driven, and they don't accept anything but the best from each other. So they push each other out of their comfort zone. I do that here. I push us all out of our comfort zone a lot because we have a big championship to take on, but we're going to win. What about your other big chapter that a lot of folks know you from your acting career? Do you ever find yourself relying on your experience as an actor in your business career? Yeah, I do. So the thing about uh, the entertainment industry that's so different 
than the industry of uh, professional sports is uh, everything is so closed off and physical and aggressive in uh, the sporting world. And in the acting world, everything's about being open and allowing yourself to feel and allowing yourself <laughs> to listen, really listen to your surroundings with all of your senses to be able to take in the, the information and react to it, right? And so it's a, it's, a, it's a hit the ball back and forth, right? And so when I think of what my entertainment career has given me, it's given me the ability to have a level of empathy I didn't allow for. It's allowed me to move through the corporate boardroom with a little more etiquette and a little more of an understanding that I can't just give someone a forearm in the chest or I can't <laughs> knock somebody down. I have, to, I have to use my verbal skills and my intellect at a much higher level. And I have to have a level of strategy, no different than the physical chess I played on the basketball court. And then from my acting career, it's just uh, storytelling, right? So much of what a customer wants to know or a, an investor wants to know is, you know, where are you going? What does this story look like? What's the world of Partana going to be three years from now, right? And so really painting the picture clearly for them so that they understand not only your vision, but they understand uh, that the vision becomes a part of their lives as well. The authenticity is key in both cases, both careers. The more authentic you are, the more you present yourself, the more people are able to understand who you are as a person. And it really gives people the, the confidence to bet on you. And it helps that both in the entertainment industry and in the NBA, the resume of winning at the end of the day is something that I've always gotten to, no matter how difficult the, the road may have been. Actually, that's a great segue to the next question I have, which is, you know, we see many, many days, the headlines are, are tough, they're daunting. And sometimes I think it, it discourages folks from believing that fighting to make a difference is worthwhile or can even be achieved. Um, and you're someone who, like you said, no, no lead is ever too, too big to come back from. How do you keep motivated? How do you keep your team or, or others motivated? How would you encourage folks to find that, that will and that belief that we can together win as a team. What's the magic there? Well, find, find the right teammates to begin with. Spend your energy with, the, with people that are believers and uh, understand resilience because it, it's really where the win is. I have no qualms about failure or falling down. My success in life has been that I get up really quickly and stay resilient in that regard. And I just know that the win is on the way. So some people talk about winning it's another thing to, to know that you're going to win and you just do the work. So suiting up and showing up, and this is 24-7 my life. Like I, I tell you, when, when, when there's no plan B and you know what it means to commit fully to something, to a cause, to a team, to a mission, I will tell you that my teammates will tell you that I eat, read, sleep. This is on my mind 24-7. And so the fact that we've been able to leapfrog forward in three years to where we are today is a tribute to our team all thinking and acting in that way. That work sometimes is very difficult. Sometimes it's emotional, it's stressful, it's disappointing. Sometimes we have moments of celebration, but we don't think it should be easy. We know it's not going to be easy, and we just fight through the difficult times. Maybe a similar answer, but I, I'm also just curious if you can remember any one piece of advice from, from a coach in life that you think can inspire someone to make a positive impact in the world. What would that advice that you remember in the back of your mind be? Dean Smith, every day I think about it. Play smart, play hard, and play together. That was the foundation at University of North Carolina. He's a student athlete on and off the court. I 
pursue my growth daily from an intellectual standpoint to get smarter about the things I'm doing, seeking out the people that I can learn from, reading the material I can read, but learning from my mistakes. So playing smart is key. Playing hard is something I've always done. And that's the point I made about being 24-7. And the universe always gives you exactly what you deserve. So I've learned at a really young age to give way more than a lot of people are prepared to give, push through my discomfort around it, and then to play together. There's nothing more enjoyable in my life than being a part of a team that works together for a common goal. At the end of the day, can celebrate those moments together. And for me, they've resulted in championship celebrations. They've resulted in awards around shows. And in this case, it'll be hopefully a celebration that we can have at some point where we like today with our home. That's a moment of celebration. Huge thanks to Rick Fox. What an awesome interview. This episode was produced by Will Gatchel and Jeff Rock, executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker, Greg Hergel, and Patrick Gallagher. Consensus In Conversation can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave us a like or rating. It really helps us out. And if you're interested in telling your story as a guest or just want to stay in the know, connect with me on LinkedIn. Consensus In Conversation is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media produced in association with Reasonable Volume. All right, we'll see you next week.